Shalom, and thank you for listening at BethEmmanuel.org. Beth Emanuel is committed to proclaiming the vital gospel message of the coming kingdom of heaven. If you share our passion for this message, please support this teaching ministry and messianic community with your prayers and financial contributions. To learn how, click on the support tab at BethEmmanuel.org. I've titled this talk, Two Cows, Atonement and Glory, because I want to talk about two cows, atonement and glory. Let's start with the cows. On the one hand, the golden calf. On the other hand, the red heifer. Were two cows ever more opposite? One of them symbolizing descent into uncleanness, the uncleanness of idolatry, the other symbolizing spiritual purification. The Torah portion tells the story of the sin of the golden cow, by which the nation became sullied and defiled. The Haftara says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Ezekiel 36.25 All your idols includes the golden cow. The Haftarah alludes to the Maftir for Shabbat Parah, Numbers chapter 19, which describes the ceremony for the burning of the red cow and the sprinkling of its waters for purification from death and uncleanness. So on the one hand, the golden cow. On the other hand, the red cow. In the one case, sin, idolatry, and uncleanness. On the other hand, purification from idolatry, and cleansing from sin's contaminations. Behold, I set before you two cows, red and gold, blessing and curse. Choose one. Choose one cow. Choose this one. Choose the red cow that you may live. It's not exactly a red pill, blue pill choice. It's a red cow, gold cow choice. God says, I set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Choose one. Choose life. There's a great deal to discuss in the dichotomy of the two cows, but I'm distracted by the Haftarah portion, which we sometimes read on Shabbat Kitisa when it's not preempted by one of these special Shabbat portions. The sages selected 1 Kings 18 to go along with the Torah's story of the golden calf, It's the story of the contest between Elijah and the prophets of Baal on Mount Hermon. That story properly begins when wicked King Jeroboam puts up two cows. Jeroboam did not want his subjects going to Jerusalem to worship, so he built two sanctuaries where they could sacrifice and pray and worship and keep the festivals. He installed two cows to go with the two sanctuaries, a golden cow at Bethel, the southernmost extent of his kingdom near Jerusalem, and a golden calf at Dan, the northern part of Israel. And he said, These are your gods, O Israel, just as it happened in our Torah portion today. Two cows. On the one hand, an idol. On the other hand, another idol. In so doing, Jeroboam opened the door to a flood of idolatry and syncretism which ultimately ultimately metastasized into Jezebel's purges. Jezebel tried to purge the worship of the Lord from the land by killing off the prophets of God and installing priests of Baal and prophets of Baal in their place. She wanted to make Baal worship 
the official religion of Israel because she was a Phoenician princess. She grew up worshiping Baal and the whole Canaanite pantheon. Without the prophets of the Lord present to correct the people, the nation was swept along with her enthusiasm for Baal. They said, What's the difference between Baal and Hashem? Aren't those just two different names for the same God? Then came Elijah to challenge the prophets of Baal on Mount Hermon. Elijah said, Let them give us two oxen and let them choose one ox for themselves. He said to the prophets of Baal, Choose one ox for yourselves and prepare it, for you are many. And call in the name of your God, but put no fire under it. 1 Kings 18.25 So he told the prophets of Baal to choose an ox for themselves and to prepare it first. You go first, in other words. But the subsequent verse says, They took the ox which was given them and they prepared it. The sages puzzled over the seeming contradiction. If Elijah told them to choose one of the two bulls and to prepare it, why does it say that one of the bulls was given to them? It sounds like he said, here, choose one, choose this one. The Midrash Rabbah reconciles these ideals with the fanciful embellishment of the story. What did Elijah do? He said, now let them give us two completely identical bulls born from the same mother and raised in the same pasture. Then cast lots for them. One bull will be for the Lord and the other bull will be for Baal. Choose for yourselves which bull. All right, these details allude to the two goats that are set before the high priest on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On the Day of Atonement, they set before the high priest two identical goats. The high priest cast lots to determine which was to be a sacrifice for the Lord, Lashem, and which was to go to Azazel, La Azazel. This is explained in Leviticus 16 is where we find this. They set two bulls before them. Maybe Elijah let them choose first just to prove that it wasn't one of those trick flammable bulls that he was going to be using. The priests of Baal chose one bull. The Midrash says that the remaining bull immediately followed after Elijah, but the bull that was assigned for Baal would not move. The 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah all gathered around their bull, but all of them together could not move the stubborn bull. Its hooves remained firmly planted on the ground. Finally, Elijah said to the bull, Go with them. The bull replied in front of everyone, My brother and I are born of the same womb from the same cow, and we have grown up in the same pasture. Why did the lot for the Almighty One fall to him? Now he goes to sanctify the name of the Holy One, blessed to be he, while my lot has assigned me to be a sacrifice to Baal. Shall I provoke my creator? This must be how the goat chosen for Azazel must have felt. In the Midrash, Elijah explained, O bull, bull, do not fear. Go with them so that they will not have any excuse for their failure. Just as your brother will sanctify the name of the Holy One, blessed be he, so too will his name be sanctified by you. The bull answered, Since you have said so, I will agree to it. 
but I will not move from this spot unless you personally hand me over to them. And that's why it says, they took the ox which was given them and they prepared it. That's not literally how it happened. It's just a story in the Midrash. And it's more about the two goats of the Day of Atonement than it is about the two bulls of Mount Carmel. All right, that's enough about cows. We had the two cows of the golden calf, the, the golden calf and the red heifer, then the two cows of Jeroboam, and the two cows of Mount Hermon. All right, let's talk about atonement now. I want to talk about atonement because our Torah portion, Kitisa, begins by telling us to collect a half shekel from every male numbered in the census. This probably would be a better talk for Shabbat Shechelim, but here we are on Shabbat Kitisa. It says, when you take the census of the people Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life when you number them. So there shall be no plague among them when you number them. Exodus 30, 12. Okay, how does a half shekel atone for anyone? It says, it, when it says it will be a ransom. It actually uses the word uh, kofer, an atonement. How does it atone? How does a half shekel atone for them? In Exodus 30, 16, it's actually called kasef hakipurim, the money of atonement, like yom hakipurim, the day of atonement. So this seems to imply a bribe or something. If that works, maybe instead of fasting on the Day of Atonement, we could just pay the money of atonement. Or to put it another way, to phrase the question in a different, from a different angle, why did the Messiah have to die to atone for sins if you can just contribute some silver as money for atonement? That's not how the half shekel worked. It's not an atonement for sin. Neither is it an atonement for souls to learn entrance into Gan Eden or the world to come. The Torah says it's an atonement so that there be no plague among them when you number them. That's a very limited range of atonement. It's merely intended to prevent bad luck from falling on the community for taking a census. When King David had his commanders take a census, he did not have an atonement plan. What happened? A plague. He did not use the money of atonement method. How does the money atone? Still sounds kind of like a bribe. If money of atonement atones to keep away the plague, we should have raised funds to pay God to keep away COVID. It turns out that we have mostly misunderstood the meaning and mechanism of atonement. If you start in the New Testament where it's easy to conflate atonement with forgiveness of sins and then read that definition onto the Torah, it's easy to get confused. Atonement does not mean forgiveness of sins in the Torah or the Levitical system. Instead, let's take a look at how these half-shekel coins are supposed to accomplish atonement for their contributors. The Torah says, You shall take the atonement money from the sons of Israel and, and shall give it for the service of the tent of meeting, that it may be a memorial for the sons of Israel before the Lord to make atonement for yourselves. Exodus 30.16 In other words, the silver is supposed to bring the individuals who donated it to God's remembrance. And when God remembers you, he acts on your behalf. Not that God forgets anything or anyone. The Bible uses the language of remembering 
to indicate acting in accordance with one's promises or obligations. So it says, God remembered Noah. It's just a biblical idiom that means God acted on Noah's behalf. Here on earth, when we're waiting for God to act on our behalf and answer our prayer, it can feel like he has forgotten us. He has not forgotten us. But we use that language and that idiom. We pray, please remember us. We mean, act on our behalf. Atonement comes through remembrance. And remembrance comes through bringing a prompt for remembrance into the presence of God. In next week's Torah reading, the mystery of the money of atonement is explained. We find out how the money is supposed to be a remembrance. It tells us that they used the silver that they collected during the census to make silver sockets and hooks in the tabernacle. That silver stayed continually in the presence of God because it was in the tabernacle. It was like a token of each donor in the presence of God, continually bringing that person's remembrance, so to speak, before the Lord. It's the same with the breastpiece and the ephod of the high priest. In last week's Torah portion, we learned that the names of the twelve tribes were engraved on two large gemstones that rested on the shoulders of the high priest. The Torah says that he bore the names upon his shoulders before the Lord for a memorial. Not that God forgets anything. By causing the Lord to remember the names of the sons of Israel, the priesthood prompted him to remember his covenant promises and act accordingly. Likewise, the high priest wears the names of the sons of Israel in the breastpiece of judgment over his heart when he enters the holy place for a memorial before the Lord continually. Exodus 28:29. It's like the high priest is wearing a name tag that says, "Hi, I'm the 12 tribes of Israel." Merely wearing the breastpiece as he entered God's presence was supposed to prompt God to remember his obligations to the nation and to act on their behalf. And that's how the priesthood functioned. All of the mechanics of sacrifice, sanctification, purification, and atonement, all of these only made it possible to get that priest into the presence of God where he could do his job of reminding the Lord about the covenant. Again, it's not as if God forgot about the covenant without a priest there to remind him. Instead, the daily ceremony indicates the need for an ongoing day-by-day relationship. That relationship takes place in God's presence. The high priest represented the whole nation in that relationship. So if you understand this, you are much, much closer to understanding the biblical meaning of of atonement. Once the priest is in the presence of God, standing in his presence in his dwelling place, his sanctuary, then he is in position to bring you to remembrance before God for good, for blessing, for protection, for covering, for forgiveness, the forgiveness of sins, all the things that we ordinarily associate with atonement. These transactions happen in the presence of God. That's the incredible value of having God dwelling in our midst, in his sanctuary, accessible to us through a priest who can bring our remembrance before him. That's what the Jewish people lost with the destruction of the temple.
This system of atonement through remembrance in the presence of God is clearly illustrated in our Torah portion where Moses sets out to atone for the sin of the golden calf. He says to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin, and now I am going to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. He says to the people, You yourselves have committed a great sin. And now I am going up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. Exodus 32.30 He turns to God and he says, This people has committed a great sin, and they have made a God of gold for themselves. But now, if you will, forgive their sin. And if not, please, blot me out of the book, out of your book, which you have written. God says, No. That's not how it works. I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. Moses tries a different strategy. He he associates himself with the people. He says, I know you like me. You claim to favor me and call me by, by, by name, to single me out. But if you're going to favor me, you also need to favor all of us, all your people. And go with all of us because I'm, I'm with them. I'm one of them and I represent them. You say you favor me. Well, do me a favor. Forgive them for my sake. That's how the conversation goes. This conversation illustrates the meaning of the Hebrew word chain, favor, which we translate into the New Testament, into New Testament Greek as charis, grace. That's exactly what grace is. Favor. God's favor. In Exodus 33:16-18, Moses says, "For how then can it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not by your going with us, so that we, I and your people, may be distinguished from all other people who are upon the face of the earth?" And the Lord said to Moses, "I will also do this thing that you have spoken." For you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. I've always wondered why Moses tosses this additional personal request onto the petition. Show me your glory. Is it not enough that he's asking God to show him favor by extending that favor to the rest of Israel and forgiving their sin? Why does he add the additional personal request, show me your glory? The answer is that he is asking to have access to the presence of God. The glory of God is his Shekinah, his dwelling presence, which rests upon the top of the mountain. Moses is asking permission to approach God's dwelling presence on Mount Sinai on behalf of the nation. God relents and says, Come up here. Moses goes back up Mount Sinai to enter God's presence a second time. He ascends Mount Sinai to approach the presence of the Lord like the high priest entering the Holy of Holies on the Day of Atonement. He's entering the presence of God on Israel's behalf. He's associated with them, identified himself with them. In the presence of God, he receives a higher revelation of God's glory than he has previously received. The Lord covers him in the cleft of the rock, passes before him, lets him catch a glimpse of his glory. He declares his name, the Lord, the Lord, God. 
compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin. Exodus 34, 6-7 Moses realizes that this is the level of revelation, the revelation of God's presence, where atonement can effectively be accomplished. Standing there in God's heavenly dwelling place on Sinai, standing in the revealed presence of God's glory, Moses presents himself as a remembrance of Israel and asks forgiveness. He says, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though the people are so obstinate, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own possession." Exodus 34.9. This conversation is the actual work of atonement. Moses atoned for Israel by acting as a remembrance of Israel in the presence of God, representing Israel before the revealed glory of the Lord. The resplendent glory of the Lord was so dazzling that it actually transformed Moses himself, so much so that his face was dazzling to behold. He was like a mirror reflecting the glory of God. In his excellent 2022 book, Rethinking the Atonement, New Perspectives on Jesus' Death, Resurrection, and Ascension, David Moffat upends the conventional Christian view of atonement as something that happens by vicarious substitute, the death of an animal, the death of a sacrifice, or the death of Jesus. He points out that, in the sacrificial system, the death of the animal does not bring atonement. It's merely the first step in a process. It's a necessary preliminary to obtain the blood of the animal, which symbolizes the soul of the person offering. Only when that blood is applied to the altar in the presence of God is atonement accomplished. This is not a new idea for us here at Beth Emanuel or in Messianic Judaism. We were discussing this 20 years ago when, in our first studies through the book of Leviticus and the book of Hebrews, we were looking at this. The sacrifices are not payments for sin. They're not penalties. The Torah does not say the death of an animal brings atonement. It says the life of the animal, the nephesh of the animal, is in the blood. Leviticus 17.11. The nephesh brings atonement because it functions as the remembrance of the offerer in the presence of God. Moffat uses the discussion in the book of Hebrews to show that it's not the death of Yeshua that atones for sins, but his resurrection, whereby he ascends and enters the presence of God in his heavenly dwelling place as a sort of priest representing human beings, representing Israel to intercede and bring remembrance of his people into the presence of God. Moffat points out that despite innumerable sermons to the contrary, when our master said, it is finished, it was not finished. The atonement was not finished on the cross. The suffering was finished, but the atonement process had only begun. To this day, Yeshua continues to actively atone because unlike the glory of the face of Moses fading as it was, 2 Corinthians 3.7, the light in the face of the resurrected one does not fade. Therefore, if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains in glory, 2 Corinthians 3.11. The resurrected body of the Messiah remains in glory, unfading and unfailing. 
He remains in the Holy of Holies of the heavenly sanctuary where he continues to atone in the presence of glory on behalf of, on behalf of his people, especially on behalf of those who associate themselves with him through faith, casting their allegiance with him. When we acknowledge him, he acknowledges us before the Father. But if we do not acknowledge him before men, neither will he acknowledge us before the Father. There's a reciprocal association in the relationship. He is like a priest carrying a memorial of you into the sanctuary, into the glory of God, where he can ask God, Do me a favor. Forgive this guy's sins. It was not a one-and-done salvation moment on the cross. It's an ongoing intercession of atonement in the presence of the glory of God made possible by the cross and the resurrection. That's why we cleave to his name and associate ourselves with him in every way possible, because we want him to bring a remembrance of us into the presence of God on our behalf and to thereby atone for us. He's wearing a name tag with my name on it, and I'm wearing a name tag with his name on it. We gaze on him like the children of Israel who gazed on the face of Moses. Paul says, We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror, that is the Messiah, the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image of glory. From glory to glory, that is from the glory of Moses to the glory of Messiah. Going back to the cows. Remember the first two cows, the red one and the gold one? The Messiah is the red cow. The book of Hebrews compares the atonement through the Messiah to the red cow. It draws that association from our Haftar portion, where it says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses, and from all your idols I will cleanse you. Ezekiel 36:25. The writer of the book of Hebrews reads that passage, and then he says, Let us draw near with a sincere heart, with full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope in Yeshua the Messiah without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Hebrews 10, 22 and 23. Take on my yoke and learn from me and find rest for your soul